0: Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, the team gathers to make their nominations for the MERS Republican Legislator of 2023 with assistance from guest reporter Rachel Louise Just, a multimedia journalist previously with News Channel 3. And in his first ever interview on the subject, retired GOP political operative Steve Linder explains how he didn't do anything wrong while developing Michigan's medical marijuana law, detailing how he was betrayed and put in harm's way amid what became the Rick Johnson public corruption and bribery scandal. People
1: who betrayed me, this was a betrayal. Rick Johnson betrayed his oath to the the people of Michigan.
0: Now, here's MERS podcast host, Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, the boss, John Rurink, and house reporter, Danielle James.
2: Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast where we are continuing our Legislator of the Year series by naming our Republican Lawmaker of 2023. We are with our House reporter, Danielle James, the boss, John Rue rank, our editor, Kyle Mullen, and our media guest for this week, the phenomenal Rachel Louise Juss, a multimedia journalist who was previously covering Michigan's Capitol and politics of News Channel 3 and will now be leaving us in
3: the Great Lakes State, which a lot of us are pretty sad about, Rachel. Right? So, how are you feeling? It's it's sad to think about leaving this great community behind. I've made so many wonderful i friends, honestly here. So, what do you
2: think it was your favorite thing about covering Michigan politics?
3: Well, I don't like to be bored, so this is a very good place to be working. Uh, I I it can be a very hectic place to be covering, um, especially when you are in TV and there's kind of just some more aspects of coverage that you have to include in your day, but I was never bored, and I was always learning something new, and what more can you ask for from a job?
2: I first met Rachel on my first assignment as a full-time reporter here at MERS, and an amazing first-time, full-time assignment. I was covering the Rudy Giuliani hearing on election corruption in the state of Michigan back near the end of 2020, and I showed up late. So I didn't get there in time to be put into the media room. So they put me in the general resident like overflow room, and I found myself getting completely circulated by a bunch of like election fraud activists that all had their cell phones in front of me and were like, what do you have to say to explain for yourself and I'm like I I don't know I'm just here trying to report a story so (laughs) I was a little bit frazzled I was a little bit overwhelmed um I think I messaged you Kyle I said people are yelling at me and I don't know what to do and I ran into the media room and the first person I saw was you Rachel and you made direct eye contact with me
3: and you were just like are you okay (laughs) That was my second week on the job, I think, maybe the third week. So I was also in that same boat, and I just happened to be in the media room, but I was definitely experiencing the same things that you were outside.
4: Well, this is very sad that you are leaving us. I hope that you have brighter and sunnier things ahead, but the uh, the Capitol Press Corps will not be the same. We were better with you uh, and not without you. So best, best wishes going forward, Rachel.
3: Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate that.
2: Well, we're gonna kick off so Republican legislator of the year with someone who had no shortage of Republican things to cover in the state house Danielle James who are you nominating.
5: Yes, you know, I'm
2: honored to be starting
5: us off yet again, and I will be nominating Representative Graham Filler from the 93rd House District for Republican of the Year. And this was sort of a tough decision because I felt like despite holding the minority, there were so many Republican members who really stood out to me because of their level of activity, like Representatives John Roth, Tom Kuntz, and Representative Andrew Fink, who I've heard was a bit upset about not winning our freshman award last week, despite not being a freshman. (laughs) (laughs) I nominated Representative Filler because, in addition to being a very positive and welcoming presence on the House floor, who will bring soda to the press corps during long session days, he has an incredible ability to work across the aisle and advance his policy priorities, especially with regard to to judiciary and criminal justice reform. Filler, a third-term House Republican, has sponsored 14 bills this year, including legislation dealing with terminated parental rights, drug treatment courts, and expanding sentencing guidelines for those who manufacture or distribute fentanyl or heroin. He was also involved with the House's version of the bill package allowing alcohol sales in Spartan Stadium, though the Senate's version of the legislation is what went to the governor, so he didn't get a PA on that one. And Filler has three public acts. His first on House Bill 4123 was part of the sexual assault prevention and training package introduced in both chambers. He also received a public act for his work on the package allowing domestic and sexual violence survivors to give virtual impact statements. His bill specifically expands the definition of ser- serious misdemeanor to include things like threats against Department of Health and Human Services employees or the embezzlement of a vulnerable adult's property. Most most recently, his bill packaged with Rep. Will Snyder to repo- remove the repeal trigger from the. Healthy Michigan Plan was signed. Filler is also championship guardianship reform in Michigan, a bill package that has passed through the House but hasn't yet made it out of the Senate. He sits on the health policy and regulatory reform committees, along with serving as Republican Vice Chair of the House Criminal Justice Committee. And I think it's also important to note that he has a long history of working with crime victims and members of law enforcement during his seven years as assistant attorney general with the Michigan AG's office. This is something I think we've really seen inform his policy this term and allow him to work in a bipartisan fashion to accomplish a lot more important legislative priorities for Michiganders.
2: I definitely definitely think that Representative Filler is a great choice just because I think he is someone that you just always see. He's always around and he's very informed on judiciary policy which can go from these you know very big topics that immediately everyone wants to turn into a headline but sometimes it's also like technical realities that people involved in the courts involved in the judicial system have been begging for for years and want to find solutions to bring more smoothness to our judiciary process
4: you know, what I wanted to say about uh, Representative Filler is that he seems to have found that sweet spot between working with Democrats and also to get things done, but also hanging with the caucus and voting with the caucus on issues of priority. Um, I, I think that's what I've appreciated. And plus, I always have a mad respect for anybody who can play a mad shortstop like he can (laughs) like he showed during that softball game he He was was, definitely he was he was a star yeah oh absolutely
2: yeah and the power of accessibility too i like notice on facebook that he's always going on facebook live to talk to his constituents and i i think that really like translate to people like how are you taking advantage of present day resources to get your message out there and to communicate with the people you represent How about
3: you, Rachel? Who are you nominating? I am nominating Representative Tom Kuntz. He is a northern Michigan Republican. He is a freshman. I think as a freshman, he's really stood out. I, I talking with other colleagues in the press corps, he's a name that we now all know, which is is impressive in a time where Democrats have the majority in that chamber and he's a freshman so he has made his mark he specifically I think has really made his mark when it came to the transparency legislation prop one implementation he was very for Taking that a lot further, uh, along with many Democrats. And I think that that was an interesting unifying issue, especially amongst these newer freshmen this year. So many of them were like, we went more from this. And he was one of the leading voices in that. He also is one of the people who I remember recusing himself because he had a conflict of interest, which you don't often see happen in the legislature. And I wonder if that's something that's going to maybe spark more of that in the future. I think that that's probably desperately needed as we've seen from some of the journalism we've covered
2: yeah it's so it's so um something that's been on my mind is that well you know you're technically supposed to not vote if there's a conflict of interest There is, I mean, there's been kind of some criticism about the legislature with, you know, there's really no repercussions Mm. if you do vote on something where there could be that conflict of interest. So you don't want to, like, give someone a pat on the back for doing something that they're supposed to do. But when you also see, like... A lot of people could be taking votes and we just don't know. And you're going to be blunt about what you're doing. I think that is something that should be recognized.
3: Yeah. And as someone who he I believe he's the Republican vice chair on the House of Ethics. It is refreshing to see someone who is taking that seriously. Doesn't mean that we need to give him the award specifically for recusing himself for that. But I do think that that's notable. And I hope that it would inspire more people who clearly have conflicts of interest. And there are many in the legislature to consider doing something like that too.
6: It's actually a good, a really good choice, Rachel, because one of the things I do is I talk to the lobbyist community before I make my selections, and, and for freshman of the year, uh, Representative Koontz was mentioned highly by uh, a very well-known influential corporate lobbyist as well as association lobbyists, and they said he, very smart uh, for a freshman, knows the, knows the system, knows the process, and uh, shows a lot of promise.
3: I also have to mention that he uh, organized that legislative softball game. Yes, the
2: co-organizer. That softball game was, am I allowed to say this? It was a banger. Like, it was was so much fun. Like, being there, like, we had, like, our little media hub that we're all hanging out. Kyle was the, what is it called in sports? The officiator?
4: No, no, the public address announcer.
2: Uh Oh. (laughs) He knew that he had that name down. Oh yeah, no, no. <laughs> I didn't know that's what they called that. Yeah,
4: it's the public address announcer.
2: Isn't an officiator like someone who officiates weddings? I think so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had
4: some lug nuts people doing that, but yeah, Kuntz and uh, Alabaster Farhat were in charge of that. That was a great, that was a great event and an example of bipartisanship. Yeah, and I think that he's also somebody who can talk the Republican talking points when need be, um, but is willing to work with the other side on other issues. So I think that's a great nomination.
2: And for one moment and one moment only, we experienced world peace in Michigan at the legislative softball
3: game. <laughs> it was beautiful, especially with some of those uh, signs that we saw the Democrats bring out were man. very, it was uh, It was an interesting night for sure, but it was fun.
2: And I did that iconic thing where I balance a drink on my head and move around. <laughs>
3: we only wish that this was not a radio podcast because then the the listeners could see what you were doing
2: (laughs) okay john rurank the boss who are you nominate
6: uh for this year's uh republican of the year i'm actually i gave it a lot of thought because if you think about republicans at the beginning of 2023 they were kind of a lost tribe uh for the first time in 40 years republicans don't control the governor's office or the courts or the senate or the house And they really need, and they had leaders that had left, and they really needed uh, some leadership to to do two things. Number one, strike the appropriate tone in terms of being an oppositional caucus to carry the Republican flag, to carry the Republican message. Uh, But you also don't want a leader that's going to be so bitter about the fact that they lost majority status in both chambers that um, they do nothing but partisan. And I think uh, Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt actually is who I'm nominating, and I think he did a very good job, I, I would argue almost near pitch perfect, of balancing those two things. He didn't abandon public policy. Uh, I think in the Senate, uh, Sam, you were telling me there were 90 unanimous votes versus 19 in the State House, uh, which is a sign that there was some cooperation that happened. Uh, I think you know he sat down with us this week, uh, and, and you could really tell he cares a lot about public policy. He did not abandon public policy. And I think... Another leader could have led them to some place they really don't want to be that the state doesn't want uh, that caucus to be.
2: And we also had Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks on the podcast for the previous episode, the most recent one. And when asked about what her relationship is like with Senate Minority Leader Nesbitt, she kind of just said like it's it's pretty great. You know, she didn't have complaints. She didn't pivot to saying like, oh, it's cordial. We talk, and it seems, and you'll see that when you're covering the state Senate. You'll see them communicate on the floor. You'll see Nesbitt coming across the aisle to talk to people. So you can obviously see that there are negotiations happening on the Senate floor, and there are conversations happening.
4: Yeah,
6: I really do think he's the Republican leader that the Republicans needed. So.
4: And while this may not be part of like legislative activities, the fundraising activity for the Senate Republicans this year was also very good, despite being in the minority they continued to um, set and hit goals in fundraising that they had hit prior to being in the majority. So despite being a minority caucus, they were raising majority-like funds, uh, which puts them in a position to do well if redistricting rejiggers the map or and we have an early uh, election or you know we just continue on and look into 2026. So uh, he's done a good job on that front as well as far as raising money
2: and the utilization of the immediate effect tool. That is something I personally nerd out about. And and it's kind of interesting because while we've covered Democrats in the minority, I really feel like this year we ultimately learned about what is the true power of immediate effect in the state Senate, because because of the present day party makeup, The Senate, there needs to be at least six Republicans to come to the table to provide legislation, the support to be enacted immediately without having to wait 90 days until after adjournment. So I think, you know, you saw, for example, they knew what they wanted. They wanted an automatic income tax rollback. And there is a tax plan being pushed by the governor and Democratic leadership that would have basically halted that and it wouldn't have taken place so republicans utilized the tool that they had and were able to get it done last but not least kyle malin who are you nominating
4: well first i like everyone's picks and i may have nominated each and every one of them had you not beat me to it but there's there's a lot of directions we could go i mean bill g schuette gained a high degree of visibility with his israel israeli resolution Um, And then I admire anyone who could run a marathon on a busted kneecap. So there's that. (laughs) House Minority Leader Matt Hall, I think, did an admirable job keeping that fractured Republican caucus together and putting Republicans in a position to negotiate wins in cases where there was not enough Democratic support to pass a bill such as the Ford-Marshall plant incentive. We could do Senator Ed McBroom. He continues to give some of the most well-reasoned, passionate opposition speeches I've heard anybody give in my 22 years of covering politics in Lansing. But my nomination is gonna go to Representative Mike Mueller of Linden. You know, Mueller showed some real guts in being essentially the 56th vote on the governor's tax plan that expanded the earned income tax credit and expanded tax write-offs on retiree income. Mueller cut the deal that ended the gridlock on one of the first major votes of the year in exchange for concessions that benefited the Republican caucus and not him personally. He took a lot of grief initially for his vote within the caucus, but in the end, it opened up a line of communication between the majority and the minority that ended up allowing more Republicans to serve on committees that they wanted to serve on. I mean, remember, at the beginning of the year, nine Republicans voted no On Speaker Tate's appointment to Speaker, which is against standard protocol. Tate was pissed. There was a big chilling out that went out, and Mueller helped thaw the ice and make discussions down the line happen. Uh, He's also made principled, as opposed to politically convenient decisions, on some votes like uh, expanding the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act. Um, and helped organize a group of Republicans to negotiate a solution to legislation at the end of the year that steers more funding to law enforcement into the crime-ridden areas of the state. Initially, Republicans were a no against that, and then Mueller helped negotiate a compromise that made that um, more palatable and then uh, advanced out of the chamber. So, uh, and then the last, the last thing I want to mention is that he and Kelly Breen worked together on legislation that the governor just signed to protect medical workers. He's got a couple PAs to his credit, which is two more than many Republicans, because he is willing to work across the aisle to get policy through. Uh, so for being effective and impactful and active this year, I'm going to nominate Mike Mueller as my Republican Legislator of the Year.
2: That's a good choice. And I, I think i definitely have noticed a theme among like the people that we are bringing forward with our nominations is individuals that really stood out in terms of while they are in the minority, utilizing the tools available to them to really make deals, to be a strong voice at the negotiation table and to kind of really give us a taste of what, you know, next year could also look like.
5: Yeah, I would say Mueller is a little bit quieter, but he seems to really buckle down and you can get things done.
2: And and that's something to notice too. While you may be the person who's kind of like in the back hallway making deals, as opposed to giving a very um a very intense and spectacular floor speech. I mean, it's really sometimes the things that we don't see that aren't caught on the live stream that have a huge influence on Lansing. Now, I am going to name mine. So when I started brainstorming for who I wanted to nominate for MERS's Republican of the Year, I very quickly landed on Senator Mark Heisinga a Walker Republican serving as the minority vice chair of the Senate Finance, Insurance and Consumer Protection Committee, which as a committee itself oversaw movement on numerous policy changes that can often go over a resident's head and occasionally my own head as I cover these topics, ranging from how good Goods and services are taxed in our state and what protections are available and could be improved on for consumers in Michigan. He was the first senator in the chamber to introduce legislation this year removing the sales and use tax on certain installation and delivery services unfastening the previous statute that placed a sales and use tax on a delivery and installation charge that was placed on the same invoice as a taxable good, which was generating around $70 million in extra tax payments. Uh, the issue ultimately became one of Republicans' earliest wins of 2023, as similar legislation was introduced later by Senate Majority Floor Leader Sam Singh and was part of the deal between Democratic leadership and Republicans to secure votes on a supplemental spending bill that dedicated nearly $800 million in resources supporting Ford Motor Company's planned battery plant in Calhoun County. Senator Heisinga and Senator McBroom also were the two Republican sponsors involved in the Proposal 1 financial disclosure legislation that lawmakers had to get sent to the governor's office by the end of the year following support from more than 2.8 million vote voters. I also want to add is that when the Senate took its chamber-wide vote on the Prescription Drug Affordability Board, which has not been sent to the governor's office yet, which is currently sitting in the House, uh, he Heisenga was one of the individuals who said, I am not going to vote on this because of a potential conflict of interest.
4: I appreciate that uh, nomination, Sam. I, I see where, you know, Heisinger has been in a position where he's had to pivot quite a bit. He is now representing a politically competitive seat. He was able to win that coming from a House seat, which was not politically competitive, where he had to be the most conservative. And I think he's done a great job in balancing and, and in that new role um, casting the votes he's needed to in order to retain the seat and while also still being effective. So it's, it's a hard line to walk going from a hard Republican seat to a competitive seat, but I think he's done that very well.
2: No, definitely. And he was also one of our state senators that had a very high liberal voting track record when we were doing our most liberal, most conservative state senator, uh, state senator recognition. And that doesn't mean necessarily that he's liberal, but ultimately what he meant is that he was able to cast votes that really had him trying to decide what would most align with this very competitive and newly unique district where you have a more conservative voting base in ottawa county uh, but you also kind of have much more new democratic progressive voters within the grand rapids greater area okay so thank you so much and we're gonna figure out who will be our pick for a republican of 2023 This was a pretty a pretty hard decision to make. A lot of us brought out really valid points and we were kind of going back and forth. There was a few different tiebreakers. Uh, but ultimately we decided that our twenty twenty-three Republican legislator of the year is going to be Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt.
4: And I think what was kind of the deciding factor here is to realize that when we entered this year, Republicans in the Senate had just gone through a a period where the leadership hadn't, uh, had kind of checked out, I think it's fair to say, in 2022. And the leadership at the Michigan Republican Party has been in disarray, I think, to be kind. And they're not raising any money. They're not really doing anything but fighting amongst themselves. And so Eric Nesbitt has kind of emerged as a leader within the Republican Party in Michigan. He is not focused on conspiratorial um, issues, which some Republicans are in. He's actually focused on issues that Republicans could probably win on in the next election. Uh, He's focused on um, uh, taxes. He's focused on the uh, the Ford plant or on incentives. And, you know, is that something we want to use? So I think to fill the void that is the Republican Party right now, Uh, Eric Nesbitt has done well in raising profiles of Republicans and also uh, raising money and putting them in a position where they can be successful going forward.
2: No, I agree with kind of the points that you made, Kyle. And also, again, to kind of talk about where we were last year and where we are now, we talk a lot about the legislature adjourning early this year. However, last year, we here at MERS found that there was a record low number of active session days as well. So here you have Senator Nesbitt, who is someone who is both was opposed to that early adjournment, but is also someone who really seems that he wants to be there. He wants to be in the Capitol. He wants to physically in-person be there and doing things even as a minority leader.
4: That presidential primary decision where he offered an alternative on the presidential primary and then also realizing that if they had voted yes on that, that they would have put his own party in a box. So he couldn't vote with the immediate effect to make the presidential primary february 27 that would have screwed the republicans and then by denying immediate effect and forcing democrats to adjourn early you know that's that's more democratic policy that ended up not being able to get passed now you could say well it wouldn't have gotten passed anyway cuz the house is 54-54 but had it not been the case you can say that that's a period of time where the democrats couldn't pass anything
2: well, thank you so much, everyone, for making great nominations. Danielle, James, Rachel, Just, we're all going to miss you. Thank you for coming on the MERS Monday podcast. And I'm sure that we will probably still call you up with whatever
3: chaos you cover in another state. If you don't, Sam, I'll be very upset. <laughs> I want to talk about it. And I want to talk about what's happening here, too.
2: Well, thank you all so much. And there you have it. Our 2023 Republican Lawmaker of the Year, Senator Eric Nesbitt. Believe me. Today we are joined by Steve Linder, a Republican political and business consultant. He's here to talk about how Michigan's cannabis law came to be and how individuals involved early on attempted to corrupt the process, ultimately resulting in the Rick Johnson scandal where four defendants have been sentenced, including Johnson, the former Michigan House Speaker who was sentenced to 55 months in federal prison for taking bribes as he served on the Michigan Medical Marijuana Licensing Board. Steve, thank you so much for taking your time to join us today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me here.
6: Hey Steve, let's start at the beginning. Uh, When did Michigan Growers Consultants, which was part of the the whole case, come to be and what was its original intent?
1: So I'm going to need to tell a pre-story because it leads to how Michigan Growers came to be. I had sold the Sterling Corporation in uh, 2014 and it was run as an independent division of another company, and I was still the president. Sterling had been in existence since uh, 1998, and I had a fundraising company servicing PACs and candidates for office and ballot question committees and so on, and I, I merged my company and was Sterling with Fred Zolick and Lori Wartz, good friends of mine, good mentors uh, of mine, and Fast forward you know, from the early 2000s to 2014, I sold the company and uh, was on a three-year earn out and management of the company until they decided how they wanted to handle it. We were an, a uh, wholly owned subsidiary. Our business was in three parts. Fundraising, as I mentioned before, I don't think there's anybody alive that's raised more money than me as an operative, uh, well over $400 million across the country. We had a uh, campaign management uh, arm that did candidate campaigns, but our biggest client had, had been for years, the Senate Republican Caucus, where we did all of their fundraising and all of their strategy and all of their media. But we also had a very substantial issue management practice. And people have read a lot about issue management, what it is and what it isn't. What it is are corporations, trade associations, uh, coalitions who need to understand how to talk about their issues, what kinds of constituencies they need to build in order to prosecute their issues. We help them develop these strategies and the messaging points. It is not lobbying. It's First Amendment right of free people to be able to associate, to talk about great issues of the day, to come up with strategies, and then those that are the lobbyists actually... There are two hundred or excuse me, three hundred and fifty million lobbyists in the United States. Every person under the First Amendment of the Constitution has the right to contact their legislator, to organize, to pool their resources. It's only if they do it for a living and they hit certain triggers that they actually have to register. There's no lobbyist license because you can't license a First Amendment right. So as an issue manager and as somebody who understood the um, thought process and values of the senate republican majority because i was their consultant i was approached by uh, rick johnson about uh, the cannabis issue that had passed through the house a really well-written bill by representative mike uh, colton Uh, some input with clint kesto his committee was the one that considered the bill and i had not been involved in cannabis i was aware of it of course i'm aware of most of the issues that go Mm -hmm. through uh, the legislature i've been a recovering substance abuser for almost four decades so cannabis really isn't my thing but i became convinced by rick and others business people that because of the massive violations of the 2008 law which decriminalized cannabis all the dispensaries that you saw on the streets in Michigan. They were illegal. I went back and read the law. Dispensaries were specifically prohibited. So why were they there? It's because law enforcement didn't quite understand the fact that even though it was legal, you weren't allowed to sell it. And where Mm -hmm. did these dispensaries get their product? From people who grew it illegally or, or caregivers. And that it got to be such a problem, money laundering, prescription mills, that like alcohol and like gaming, people believe that now that the toothpaste was out of the tube, the best thing to do was to regulate it. Mm-hmm. Regulate it, create barriers of entries to attract good, you know, good, solid, successful uh, business people, create jobs, create revenue, create tax revenue uh, for the state. And once I heard that argument, I became convinced that that was the thing to do. So, Michigan Grower Consultants came out of that
4: then, and so who are the principals? What roles did they play?
1: Well, there's one connecting piece. I'm sorry, I, I I need I have one chance to get this right. I ran this coalition along with Sandra McCormick. It had already been in in existence, and we pulled all the stakeholders in. It's important to know cops, local units of government, healthcare professionals, so that the bills that eventually came out of the Senate, which was a substitute package, did everything that it was supposed to do. But the most important thing that it did is it was supposed to drive out criminality. It was uh, supposed to be somewhat bribe-proof. Nothing is ever bribe-proof because we talk to other states, which is why there's no caps on licenses. And that it was supposed to be lawsuit-proof because every place that had caps, people that didn't get chosen... Ended up suing, saying that the caps weren't equally applied. Once the bill got passed and my earnout was up, two guys that had been sitting at the table with Rick Johnson and, and many others uh, were two young lobbyists, Brian Pierce and Vince Brown, who had been chiefs of staff to Bob Kazowski and to Clint Kesto, talked to me about maybe forming a business to help the people that would be the poster children for new licensees, navigate the process. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I've been involved with young people before, wanted to train, train up these guys. I kept my own business. They kept their own business, which became a problem. And we decided to hook up with a couple of law firms that were experts in the law and decided to form this rev sharing uh, client sharing business called Michigan Growers Consultants. I was a minority owner, by the way, of mm-hmm. Michigan Growers Consultants. That's important to know. Brian Pierce was the managing partner. Okay.
6: Which leads us to the third question that you know, I, I wanted to ask. And So if this company had three partners, right, and, and you were one of them, the other two got in, in, indicted, the third you did not, how did that, how did that happen, how did that come about?
1: Well, first of all, because I'm innocent because I didn't do anything wrong. And again, going back to the law, if you look at how you how I helped craft a piece of legislation to make it so that only people that could get land that could pass criminal background check that could be well capitalized that could, you know, assemble legal financials could get through to a recommendation to the board. Remember, the board was at the end of the process. You didn't get to the board until you got through a four to eight month process through LARA in the Bureau of Medical Marijuana Regulation, and you'd already invested millions of dollars. If you got through that process, your chance of getting a license was a hundred percent. And if you got denied, you had an automatic appeal to an administrative law judge, Or you could go to court if you wanted. There was no death penalty here. The board just didn't have the power that everybody has made it out to be in the news stories uh, that have appeared. They were at the end of the line, and nobody has proven that the board ever acted in opposition to the recommendation of Lara in the Bureau of Medical Marijuana Regulation.
4: So basically, just because somebody had paid Brian Pierce or Vincent Brown and Rick Johnson to try and get a specific result, there's never been any proof that somebody actually benefited from those bribes.
1: No, it, it was a ripoff. It couldn't possibly have succeeded. What's come to me since is, Steve, how did Rick think he could get away with it? Well, he couldn't. And he didn't get away with it. And how? Well,
6: he got away with taking the money.
1: He got away with taking the money but he he couldn't deliver he 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 could not deliver and part of the reason that this thing kind of blew up if you will i started to discover some very troubling transactions out of our company and conversations that i had with brian and i did not have the books or the financials i could have but you know It was not my job, we had an accounting firm, really good accounting firm, and Brian was a managing partner. It was really just a money in, money out business. And when I finally uncovered through a a series of, of investigations that I did, I realized that money had been misappropriated and false entries were made into our account. And we had a fairly ugly confrontation I assembled a meeting with former FBI agents and former sheriff and an attorney, and I laid out all of the allegations, which was in a Detroit News article of payments that I, I didn't understand. I didn't understand what they were for. I didn't understand why we were making them, and uh, blew up the company very publicly. I distributed this memo widely in Lansing so that Brian couldn't work, and. Uh, Kept very detailed records of all of this, and at the appropriate time, made those available.
2: At any time, did you negotiate a deal with prosecutors in front of a grand jury, or go in front of a grand jury?
4: No and no. But did you say that you didn't negotiate a deal? Uh, Did you bring this to the attention of law enforcement? Uh, And if
1: so, what did you find? I did not go directly to law enforcement because what I had found was still only part of the story. What I saw was troubling, was unethical. What was relayed to me uh, in our confrontation was still just hearsay. Nobody ever said we gave money to Rick for this. And uh, uh, so, you know, it's, it's very difficult to go until you have absolute hard facts. When it came time to present those, they were presented.
6: In covering this whole thing, where do you think the media uh, either got it right or got it wrong?
1: Well, it's a long answer. I'll try and keep it very succinct. There's really two pieces, uh, uh, three pieces to this. One is they never really talked about the barriers of entry. Kyle, you were the only person anywhere that talked about the barriers of entry and off the record. I looked at it and I said, bravo, somebody finally understood the law. And the the fact that only qualified, well-capitalized, successful business people that had not committed crimes within the period of time could have received a recommendation and a license. That was just completely missed. The way the stories were written, it sounded like the board was just reaching into the pile in skewing the process. They were a rubber stamp. That didn't, pretty much, not, they still had to vote and they could have overruled uh, Lara, but they didn't. There's no evidence of it. I haven't seen it and no, I haven't gone back and looked at the transcripts of every, every meeting, but enough time has gone by. Somebody must have done that and nobody has ever brought forward every, any evidence. So the barriers of entry preventing this was one huge miss in the story, in my opinion. The second one, as I mentioned, nobody has ever demonstrated that for all the money that was detailed in the documents that uh, the court had that had been uh, transmitted to these various entities resulted in any licenses being awarded that weren't earned or denied, that weren't supposed to be denied. That's this. this. And the third part, which is, again, troubling and which has been most troubling to me, I've had a very long political career and I've been involved in things that a lot of people, the press and others don't like, and that is the raising, pooling and, and deployment of dollars to speak to citizens about great issues of the day or about issues that legislators might take. And because I'd been doing that for so long and, and I was doing it during the period of time that all of this was taking place, there's been a conflation of the two. All of the funds that I raised and deployed uh, for the, up to the 2018 election were for Senate, period legislators don't own 501c4s boards own 501c4s they have to go before the IRS they have to get they have to get certified and so this this narrative that you know this was a legislator affiliated c4 it's not a board still has to make an approval and you know my last election cycle 2018 which was the last successful cycle we deployed almost all of the money that we had raised you know, I, it, some of the Democrats uh, have been joking with me that I should have stuck around one more cycle because, uh, you know, of course, you know, under the Shirky uh, campaign team, they lost the Senate for the first time in, you know, in 40 years. And, and uh, uh, there's been an issue of some of the money that went through the C-4s going to this unlock Michigan. I'm not suggesting anybody did anything wrong. That's between the Attorney General and and, and the other parties. But uh, nonetheless, that's an awful lot of money that didn't go into Senate races.
2: Now, out of the payments involved in the case, though, how many were made out of the funds of the Michigan Growers Consultants?
1: To be honest with you, I don't know. Uh, It's never been told to me because the entries were made in such a way that it was difficult to track, you know, Uh, We looked at all the finances of the company once this thing uh, became uh, involved in law enforcement, and it was very difficult. It wasn't wasn't a lot, but I don't know exactly how much came out of there, but none of it was approved by me. Uh, None of it was deliberated on by me, and I didn't know about it until after the fact. But you are a
4: minority member, and you are a person who was involved with this Michigan Growers, right? And what was done without your knowledge?
1: Correct. I did not have the checkbook.
6: I think you've addressed uh, uh, some of this already, but um, it sounds like you're fairly convinced that, A, Rick Johnson couldn't have successfully pushed through an unqualified applicant, uh, but B, what safeguards, I guess, does Lara have in place to make sure— this process rolls forward the way it should. I mean, you were there for the crafting of this legislation.
1: Well, it became very clear the board wasn't working, and it, me and a couple of attorneys actually went to the administration at the time and said, you should probably get rid of the board. We got stuck with the board. The legislature was very concerned about something illegal now becoming legal and needing some citizen oversight, and not just you know people in, in administrative agencies managing this perfunctorily. And, uh, you know, the board was never a good idea. If you saw my testimony that I gave in Kansas, they had asked me to come because I knew the sponsor of the bill and they wanted to know what we did right and what we did wrong. And I was very clear in that testimony, which is now posted, that um, the board was, quite frankly, always a bad idea and it turned out to be a bad idea. Once the board was eliminated, by Governor Whitmer in the first quarter of 2019, then uh, she, you know, everything was now contained within the agency. And it was always a closed loop. Once an application was submitted, Mm -hmm. nobody outside, including the board, ever saw them, from my knowledge, because you had the Riemann Company doing the forensic financial check. You had the FBI and Department of Homeland Security and State Police doing criminal background. You know, you had all uh, you had uh, Treasury looking over business plans and demonstration of capitalization and and in pro formas. You had inspectors from LARA and locally looking at the buildings that were built there just wasn't the opportunity anywhere along the way for the board to really interfere or intervene. So this was always a con, it was always a Mm ripoff. Successful Mm ripoff, but it ended up like every ripoff and Ponzi scheme crashing down. What kind of impact
4: has this whole case had on you? Um, How much can you say about how much this whole thing
1: has had a toll on you personally? I have spent my life in democracy. I've spent my life working on great causes of the day. I've been blessed to have good mentors and good partners and to have been uh, an operative at the highest levels in terms of being able to help fashion who serves in state government and, and what issues were considered and how they were uh, spoken about. And I was an activist. Activists don't always make friends, depending on what side of the issue that you're on. So. You know, some people really like me and some people don't. I just always wanted to be that guy that people came to when they needed tough problems and they needed people that had resolve and commitment and and thick skin. You know, I can handle all day long people attacking me for, you know, being the king of C4s or having my name, you know, on billboards because I want to regulate uh, caregivers. What I can't handle is people who betrayed me. This was a betrayal. Rick Johnson betrayed his oath to the, to the people of Michigan. Rick Johnson and Brian Pierce and their conspiracy betrayed everybody that worked on this legislation, betrayed me, put me in harm's way, put a lot of other people who aren't named. I'm just very public, which is why people have written about me in, in harm's way. And anytime you are mentioned in the same breath as bribery, it's devastating, especially at the end of my career. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very difficult to recover. Now, people that know me know I didn't have anything to do with this. I had numerous people willing, if I needed to, uh, testify, not that I'm a good guy. That's a small list, you know, (laughs) but people who worked with me on every facet of this to demonstrate this just couldn't have happened and if i put together a construct where it couldn't happen and helped put together a construct for rules where it couldn't happen then why why would i do it it's like building a bank that you can't rob and then turning around and trying to rob the bank right <laughs> <laughs> just it doesn't make any sense but it's been hurtful and i don't think that uh, you know the press can write a lot of things but some of the accusations that have been made, you know, well, I'm an unregistered lobbyist. Well, bullshit, prove it. I have every right to do what I did. I I've spent over $15 million on lawyers. I know where the lines are between advocacy and lobbying and campaign finance and election law and where they all intersect. I mean, one of the newspapers actually used Mark Brewer as a source to determine whether or not I, I broke the law.
4: What's wrong with Brewer? He knows election law.
1: He hates me. So why why would you go to somebody that you've tussled with uh, and it, with no facts, by the way? Well, you know, if he did this and did this, well, he may have, you know, done this. All that is is, is sheer speculation. Uh, you had one publication uh, write an article Who's next? It's like, step right up, make your bets. Who's next? You know, is it Thieve Lenders and Arlen Meekhoff? How dare they? I mean, seriously, based on what? Well, we've got these, un, you know, anonymous sources. So they, you know, bitch at us about secret donors, you know, but you can have anonymous sources slander people. And I just thought the whole thing was, was tawdry. It was uh, unethical in, in, in my opinion. And so the toll that it's taken is I couldn't speak out. You know, I was in, I had one audience. Okay. Your wife? Yeah, that's the audience. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's been very hurtful. I've had to make a lot of phone calls and explain to people how this happened, how this took place. And the fact of the matter is I'm sitting here with you and they're in jail. That's all that really needs to be said, I believe.
4: So Steve, what did you uncover then when you took a look into what you saw Brian Pierce doing?
1: As I said earlier, some very troubling things started to materialize in the management of Michigan Growers Consultants. People that we weren't doing business with seeming to interact with the other partners of the company. And when I finally did take a look at the checkbook, there were some payments that were not approved, not accounted for, and I confronted Brian about what these were. And a few of these checks went to JBJ Ranch, which was Jan Johnson. When I inquired about them, the response was, well, they're for bookkeeping. And Quite frankly, we had accountants. There was no reason for this. There was no other explanation that was given. I'd never been exposed to illegal behavior before. I just thought that it was stinky. You're allowed to do business with spouses and family members of elected officials and appointees, but you shouldn't do it because it creates a a conflict of interest. And when I confronted Brian with it, he, he acknowledged that... These were payments that he unilaterally made and that also uh, seemingly came from the consulting firm that he had and at that point in time, I had sort of had it and was not going to be a party to anything that was unethical, possibly illegal. I was more worried about the, the lobby law than I was anything else because I'd never been exposed to truly criminal behavior before. And as I uh, stated earlier, I had this blow up meeting where I wanted to destroy the company to detail all of the things that my investigation into the, uh, Brian's conduct and possible misuse of our funds and some incredible things came out of this meeting I was shocked at at the revelation what did you learn that money had been paid for a, a stripper for, for, who? for Rick that's the way it was related to me is just, just a stripper a, a a stripper I was just absolutely stunned and floored that monies had been paid to Brian presumably to be used to influence decisions, and of course, as I stated earlier, the decisions couldn't be affected by the board. And people came looking for their money. Is there? So, what about the Batman? Did you was Batman brought up in this meeting? So at this meeting, uh, the term which I had not heard before—that you know, Rick had been called Batman—I found out much later that Brian had been called Robin. Oh, they so, were Batman and Robin. So who who knew that, you know, the crime fighters gone rogue, you know, were sitting here, you know, in Lansing, Michigan, right in front of our eyes. I actually uh, made a comment later that I think the reason Batman and Robin and the stripper all got along is they all had to slide down poles professionally.
0: Oh, wow. And,
1: uh You know, I I was just, I was stunned. I was floored. I was sick about it. But this was all part of this blow-up meeting. These revelations came out. They were witnessed. I detailed them. And uh, it even more convinced me that I needed to separate myself pretty violently from this group of people and make certain that we went back and tried to uncover any other potential wrongdoing why were they using code names anyway well i i I don't know because how hard would it be to figure out who it was that you were referencing so why use the code words
4: (laughs) that's bizarre okay you had mentioned that you were not pleased with some of the media coverage um, about this case in particular a a story about what's next, like who is going to be charged next. What are you referring to on that?
1: In the reporting uh, about Rick and Brian and John DeLally and Vince being charged, obviously there was a lot of speculation. There always is. We're a gossip town, right? And people figure, oh, you know, anybody associated with these folks have to be involved. And I was really shocked and disappointed When Gongwer wrote an article that said, who's next, and speculated on my name, I was furious.
4: Well, we do those kind of stories in in the political arena, as far as like who would be next to run for like, let's say, U.S. Senate or
1: governor. Who would be next to be charged in a crime? Who does this? With what information? And it turns out that, you know, whatever sources they used were absolutely wrong
2: you know, as there was aspirations for regulation that, you know, evolved into aspirations for wealth and the corruption side of it all. It seems that the marijuana patients and the patient advocates were completely left out of that conversation and continue to be left out in the media coverage of this.
1: Okay. Marijuana is not medicine. We call it medical to make ourselves feel good. Okay. It's not medicine. Prove it. They can't because it's illegal at the federal level and there's been no research on it.
4: What would you call it if it's not medicine?
1: It's pot. We don't know what the properties are. It can't be dosed. The reason we couldn't get the medical society to join our coalition, they wouldn't touch it. They said, we don't know what's in it. We don't know who's growing it. Do you know what the distinction in the law is between medical and recreational contaminants? medical marijuana or what we call medical marijuana has to be tested at a, at a higher standard for metals for pesticides for pests for all all manner of contaminants that's the only difference it doesn't attest to the fact that it's uh, medicine when the federal government finally gets out of the way and big pharma finally starts to do research on the properties of it, and they can synthesize it in a way where a doctor can say, okay, for your condition, we're going to recommend, you know, eight milligrams of this taken five times a day, you know, to treat this condition. It's not medicine. Sorry. So call yourself patients. Let me ask you, caregivers grow stuff in their basement with concoctions that nobody knows what it is. Is that... How you? If you had a heart condition, would you go down the street to somebody that's grinding some stuff up in a bowl and a pestle and saying this is going to make you feel better? Well, if you were in chronic pain, you would try anything. Well, yeah, people go to Mexico and use laetrile, and it doesn't work either. So
2: it's kind of interesting. I think there's an ongoing conversation about like marijuana policy and what does the future look like. And I don't know. It kind of just seems that everything eventually
1: turns into a a business at the end of the day. That's what this was meant to be because the business at the time was illegal. It was illegal. Nobody was paying taxes. Nobody was reporting income. Doctors were flying in to the state and landing at small airports and charging huge amounts of money to write prescriptions for, for medical marijuana. How, how is that a good system? We were stuck. We were stuck with this mess on the street, and the best option was just like illegal gambling, just like illegal alcohol, and that was to create a regulated system where people were accountable and could protect public health and safety by having tested product.
2: Seems that we're now full circle in our conversation. Steve Linder, thank you so much for taking time to come on the MERS Monday podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you so much to the MERS team, editor Kyle Malin, the boss John Rurink, our house reporter Danielle James, and our guest nominator, multimedia journalist Rachel Louise Joss for helping us nominate our Republican legislator of 2023. Also, I would like to thank retired GOP fundraiser Steve Linder for participating in his first ever interview on the early days of developing Michigan's medical marijuana law. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Okemos. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber.